God's word together. Father, we thank you that one of the ways in which we see your grace extended to us is that uh, you don't leave us alone in the world to work things out for ourselves, but rather, Lord, you, you've revealed everything you would want to reveal about yourself here in, in your word. And Lord, you speak to us. Lord, these words come alive for us and they shape us. They mold us into who you would have us to be. Lord, we're thankful that you do speak to us through your word and expectant, Lord, this morning that you'll speak to us again. Lord, I pray that you might uh, let these words come alive for us this morning, that, Lord, they might speak to us where we are and um, in our own lives, Lord. So I pray that you might uh, speak through me and that, Lord, you might help us to continue to worship you now by, by listening to your voice and by opening our hearts, Lord, to respond to what you may be wanting to say to us. So, Lord, pray that you would use me now and use this uh, work that's been prepared for your glory and for our good. We ask it. Amen. If you're interested in stories with happy endings, you'd be better off reading some other book. In this book, not only is there no happy ending, there is no happy beginning and very few happy things in the middle. This is because not very many happy things happened in the lives of the three Baudelaire youngsters. Violet, Klaus and Sonny Baudelaire were intelligent children and they were charming and resourceful and had pleasant facial features, but they were extremely unlucky. And most everything that happened to them was rife with misfortune, misery and despair. I'm sorry to tell you this, but that is how the story goes. That's the introduction to Lemony Snicket's A Series of Unfortunate Events. And perhaps if you've ever read some of the Psalms, some of the ones that are sort of uh, slightly on the more depressed sort of side of things, you might be forgiven for thinking upon reading some of those that this book that we'll explore over this summer might be something of an apt summary for us here. Given. That at the best, Psalms might sort of show us with disarming honesty the unsettling sort of emotional instability of following God, that it's these great emotional mountaintops followed by sort of the spiraling depths of despair and seemingly not too much gap in between, and little to no sense really of how to navigate life through all of these other than to just accept that, well, that's the way it is. And yet, Psalm 1 shows us that whilst the Psalms do indeed give us songs of both faith and frustration, of joy and of sorrow, the editor of this songbook, like with any great album, had a plan in all of it. He had one particular theme, and it's not the disorderly emotional roller coaster it might at first appear. Unlike Lemony Snicket's series of unfortunate events, this is a story with a happy ending. For the editor of the Book of Psalms begins, like Lemony Snicket, setting you up for what is to come. But if Lemony Snicket wanted you to know that this was not going to be a story with a happy ending, the Psalms want you to know from the very first Psalm, and indeed from the very first word, in fact, this is a book that has a happy ending. For all the emotional struggles that we experience, which the Psalms will vocalize and set to a melody, happy is the one who follows the way of the Lord. That is the point of this first psalm, and indeed, actually, it's the point of the whole book, that happy is the one who follows the way of the Lord. When all is said and done, happy is the one who follows God. 
That's the theme of our psalm this morning. In fact, actually, it's the theme of our little adventure through the book that we'll have over the course of this summer. But turn with me there to this psalm. Look at these first couple of verses with me here. And what we see is two ways to live given for us, don't we? Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. And on his law, he meditates day and night. From the very first word, the psalmist wants us to know, the songwriter wants us to know here that this is about being happy. Blessed, happy is the man, is the person, is the one who follows the way of the Lord. So the book is telling you, even from the first word here, that it is centrally concerned with you being happy. It is centrally concerned with you being happy, number one, and number two, with how you can be happy. Happy is the one who follows the way of the Lord, who walks not in the counsel of the wicked. Some of the songs throughout the course of Psalms will reflect and, and meditate on this finding happiness. Others will meditate on the frustration of having felt as though you're not happy and haven't found it. But from the very beginning here, we hear that actually this book is concerned with you being happy and how you can be happy. See, the thing that we find actually in the gospel is that your joy matters. The Psalms are honest about pain and struggle, but as with any great book or any great album, it's fundamentally positive. It has a fundamental message here of positivity of actually your joy matters. You can find joy. It does matter that you find that. Do you have happiness in life? See, the Christian journey is not actually the antithesis of hedonism. That is the pursuit of joy above all and in all. The gospel is not the opposite to that. It doesn't oppose it. The gospel says, and we'll see here in this psalm even, you should indeed live for what would make you feel joy, not pain. Why on earth would you seek to live a life that would seek out pain and discomfort? Makes no sense. You should indeed seek to find joy in life. And the gospel says that you'll not find that joy in substances or status or experiences or a certain quality of life or economic security. And you know that, really. But it may not be a bad thing to be reminded again, but you know that. You know that even when you do find those fleeting moments of happiness and joy in those things, that it's exactly that. It's fleeting, isn't it? It, it seems to come and go so quickly. The happiness that you had felt in that thing, in that moment, in that experience, in that relationship, in that uh, job, in that pay rise, in whatever, goes so quickly, doesn't it? The gospel says you should indeed pursue your joy. And it says you can find joy. It is attainable. You find it in knowing your maker. You don't follow Jesus to be unhappy. Because somehow being happy is wrong. Really, you need to seek this sort of life of self-sacrifice and giving up the idea of being happy and joyful. Actually, no, instead the gospel says, no, 
you can find true, lasting, guilt-free happiness in God. God doesn't lead you to a life where you sacrifice joy, but where you truly find it. And isn't that the opposite to what the world so often expects the message of the gospel to be? I think the world expects that, that the gospel is saying the opposite, that it is saying that actually, you know, this is fundamentally a way of giving up on the idea of being joyful as if that's selfish and wrong. And now you have to look to higher ends. I think it's the opposite of the world's view, isn't it? The world thinks that somehow you would have to give up the hope of being happy in life if you want to follow God. And yet Paul will say that he gave up all for the surpassing worth of knowing Christ. That's a simple economic equation that Paul's giving us, isn't it? That he's given up all in one sense because he recognizes that all he's receiving in knowing Jesus is of a greater value than what he gave up. What he's telling us is it's not a losing game to follow Christ. He's given up what was worth less for something that was worth more. He's not lost. He's traded up, isn't he? And Jesus himself will describe the kingdom of God as being like a pearl of great value, that upon finding it, you go and you sell everything that you have to get the field that it's in, because you recognize that everything you have isn't worth as much as the pearl that's in that field. Following Jesus isn't a losing game. It's not a case of losing out. It's a case of trading up. The world thinks, though, that everything that's good, everything that could bring me joy, everything that is really worth having is something outside of God. What that's saying, let's just peel back the layers slightly further. If everything that is good, everything that could bring me joy, everything that's really truly worth having when all said and done is outside of God, then what I'm saying is that God is not good. That God might actually be found to be holding me back and holding back from me things that are truly good. Do you see that what is happening is not a neutral position, is it? It's, it's a different gospel. It's an anti-gospel. If the gospel says that you'll find true hope, true joy in Jesus, and the world is saying, actually, no, you won't. Everything that would truly offer you joy is outside of God. It's two opposing messages, isn't it? And yet, if God is truly good, he must actually be able to bring me greater joy than anything else, doesn't he? For, him to, for that to really be true, when he says that, that he is really, truly good, he must actually be able to bring me greater joy than anything else ever could. And he is, and he does, and that's the heart and the message underneath this psalm that we look at this morning. And so the psalmist answers for us here, how can we live this blessed life? How can we know this joy? How can we know this happiness? And he gives us firstly three things not to do, secondly a heart change, and thirdly one thing to do, just in these couple of verses here. There's three things not to do here. It's a call to abandon the sort of harmful path of the ungodly. And one of the things we see here is that actually each word for the wrongdoer actually escalates and gets worse in each of the three. Uh, and each one of the sort of associations with the ungodly gets more and more intimate in this sort of 
Jewish worldview, to walk with someone is not as intimate as to stand next to someone and not as intimate as to sit alongside. It's increasing in intimacy in terms of that association with the wicked, and those words for the wicked are increasing in severity, and there's a call to abandon that harmful path. Firstly, that uh, not to walk in the counsel of the wicked, and this is about who you listen to. If you want to be happy, here's the message here, don't heed the advice of the unrighteous. And there's a practical reality there, isn't there, that you cannot help hearing all the advice that you will hear in life. You can't help that some of that advice will be bad. What we can affect is what we heed, what we walk in. Don't walk in the counsel of the wicked, firstly. It's about what we, who we listen to. Secondly, it's about what we do, nor the one who stands in the way or in the path of sinners. If you want to be happy, you have to get off the path of sinfulness. Again, you can't necessarily help uh, how or where others are walking. You can't affect that. That's not up to you, is it? But you don't have to stand on the same path as them. And yet sometimes we can find ourselves on that same path, can't we? We can find ourselves taking a diversion and a detour and winding up on much the same path. You can't help the direction that they're going and what they may be doing, but you can certainly help where you're standing. Because at best, you'll find yourself in the way of a place that you're not really supposed to be. At worst, you'll find that you're going the wrong way. Either way, it's not the way for you, is it? Bilbo Baggins in Lord of the Rings says to Frodo, it's a dangerous business, Frodo, going out of your door. You step into the road, and if you don't keep your feet, there is no knowing where you might be swept off to. There's a call here not to stand in the way, the path of sinners. So it's about who you listen to, it's about what we do, and then thirdly, it's about how we think. Look, nor the one who sits in the seat of scoffers. If you want to be happy, then don't join in the, with the foolish in their judgments. Again, you can't help that some people in life will sit making foolish judgments on many things about people and about the world. You can't help that. You can't help that people in your life will be doing that. You can't affect and change that. But you don't have to sit at the bench with them making the same judgments. Three things to avoid if you want to live this blessed life. It's about who you listen to, it's about what we do, it's about how we think. Don't walk in the counsel of the wicked, don't stand in the way or the path of sinners, and don't sit in the judgment seat with scoffers. It's worth noticing perhaps actually how this would affect all of your life. What you take on board, what you give out, the way you see the world, In fact, it's more impactful than if the psalmist had sort of said, which wouldn't make for a very good uh, song or or poem at all, would it? Had given some sort of extensive list of don't do this, do that. Actually, what he gives is something much more general, something that actually would affect the way in which you would approach everything that you do and every place in which you find yourself. 
So firstly, there's three things not to do. Secondly, there's a heart change that's required, isn't there? Look at verse two. But his delight is in the law of the Lord. It's not just about there's some things not to do. That might seem in some ways actually quite achievable. But there's something much harder, much more fundamental now, isn't there? There's a heart change. His delight is in the law of the Lord. The righteous, those who are blessed, find their delight in God's word. So now there's a problem. How can we really affect that sort of heart change? This is much harder work, isn't it, than just simply not doing something or taking up doing something else. This is much harder. This is about what we love, what we fear, what we really care about, what we're invested in. That's, that's harder to really define. In fact, sometimes it almost feels a bit impossible to really shape that, doesn't it? So how can we affect this kind of heart change? Well, now the psalmist tells us, thirdly, the one thing to do. Verse 2 continues, and on his law he meditates day and night. And meditating upon God's law leads you to delight in it. Meditating upon God's word leads you to loving God's word and loving the God of the Bible. And that might seem difficult, to meditate day and night upon the word of God. Because that's something more than just reading it, isn't it? I mean, it's certainly not less than reading it, but it's something more. It's something more to meditate upon God's word, isn't it? And so you might well be thinking you'll have busy lives in lots of different ways, different commitments and responsibilities and uh, burdens upon your time and be thinking, how can I really find the time, the focus to meditate upon God's word day and night? And yet... I hope I might be able to show you even briefly that actually meditation might be a much more familiar everyday discipline to us than we may imagine. I mean, think of some of the ways in which we express a kind of everyday meditation. Think about the way in which we often meditate upon something that somebody has said, that you keep thinking over, that you keep reanalyzing, that you keep sort of coming back to and deciding what you should have said. It would have been so good if I only I could have said that back in response. You know, with 2020 hindsight, we have the most sort of devastating sort of wit and logic, don't we? But we keep reapplying it over and over until we feel like we can get the perfect response that we never gave. Or think about that news cycle that you just keep refreshing. And you keep reading the latest story on, the latest updates, and even so much so that you recognize the same paragraphs being microwaved into a new article time after time. That it's, uh, this, is, this is familiar, I've read this before. Or perhaps that series that you've been binging on that you can't wait for the next episode of, that you, you find yourself sort of reading up on the sort of fan pages of the theories of who did it and thinking about and talking about with others. It's the thing that you think about as you sort of go to sleep. Or if it's sort of more your interest, those sort of sports stats or transfer rumours that you keep following sort of routinely, religiously, each morning that you think about, that you have a nervous anticipation about. Or that encounter that you wish you could change, that you keep coming back to and thinking, well, what if? Or if only? Or if they just have? Or if I'd just have? Now, we're very, very natural meditators upon a great many things in everyday life, I think. 
Alexis de Tocqueville, a French historian and political scientist, produced a really influential uh, piece of work called uh, Democracy in America in 1835, still used in many universities to uh, discuss these uh, uh, political re realities and things. And in it, he makes this startling sort of analysis of American culture uh, that rings sort of prophetically true, actually far beyond American culture and far beyond the time in which he wrote it. He writes at one point, each citizen is habitually engaged in the contemplation of a very puny object, namely himself. Each citizen is habitually engaged in the contemplation of a very puny object, namely himself. The psalmist encourages us here not into an unfamiliar discipline. We are all too familiar with meditation. Rather, he's asking us to elevate our chin approximately 60 degrees to take our gaze away from our navel and to the sky. The psalmist encourages us to find happiness by meditating not upon our puny selves, but upon the majesty of God. The psalmist calls us to live in meditation upon God and his word and to find happiness at the other end. But look at verse 3 here. Now we get this piece of imagery, this wonderful image of the tree here, which is a picture of what the righteous, the one who follows the way of the Lord, the one who meditates upon God's word and whom is blessed, what that looks like. He is like a tree. We're told now the significance of this imagery is seen first by a comparison to another image that he'll use a little later on in verse 4 of chaff. The unrighteous are like chaff, the righteous are like a tree. And there's a, a comparison there, just a sheer one of size, isn't there, of the tree just to the, the chaff. But the significance is now drawn out in, in four kind of connected images here in this, in this verse. It's a tree planted by streams of water. It's a tree that's nourished by the supply of water from streams. It's a tree that yields its fruit in its season, secondly. That God's nourishment is actually uh, seen in the life of the righteous person, in the righteous person bearing fruit in due season. And fruitfulness is often pictured like this in terms of righteous living. Uh, John uses uh, a similar um, uh, image in, in Matthew chapter 3 as people are coming out to him there. He speaks uh, to the Pharisees and the religious leaders. He says, go, uh, bear fruit in keeping with righteousness. And Jesus himself will speak about the righteous bearing good fruit. A good tree bears good fruit. Therefore go and bear fruit. And those who are not bearing fruit are not righteous. Another way you could put it is the way in which James, one of Jesus' brothers, puts it in the saying that you can tell who has been made righteous by God by looking at who behaves righteously. He says, show me your justification by your works. And his point is not to oppose the idea that we're made righteous by God, not at all, but it's to say that's evidence by looking at what you do. You ultimately do what you believe, what you Love, what you follow. Righteousness is seen here in a tree that yields fruit in its season. It's seen thirdly in that its leaf doesn't wither. Usually, of course, at least for most trees, you could be right in saying I'm 
far from an expert gardener, but for most trees, there is a sort of barren winter season where leaves drop off and where not much seems to be happening. And then as has happened in our garden over the last even month or so, all of a sudden certain plants that look completely dead burst into life and into color. But this is a tree that's quite different because it's a tree that's evergreen. There's always some signs of life here. There's always some sign of the righteous flourishing and having life within them. The righteous are like a tree and its leaf doesn't wither, thirdly. And fourthly, it's like a tree and in all that he does, he prospers. The grace and favor of God are seen going over the righteous in actually all that they do. The righteous shall flourish. And then lastly, we see that there's two destinies to come. If the song began by contrasting here two different ways to live, now we see the two destinies that are to come at the end of these ways of living. One commentator uh, says this, that the, uh, speaking of this contrast between the righteous and the unrighteous in this last section here in verses four to six, he says, the reader naturally identifies with one or the other, either with the righteous or the unrighteous with the subtle message that those who are wicked should go no further into the literary sanctuary of the Psalms. After all, like the physical sanctuary, the lit literary sanctuary presumes an intimacy with God that only the righteous can experience. Psalm 1 stands like a Levitical gatekeeper warning the wicked to proceed no further. You're really not going to understand or appreciate or get anything from this book if you're not going to be willing to step onto the way of the righteous, the way of those who will follow God. If you're wanting to, to remain on the path of sinners come the end of this psalm, you really ought not bother continuing the rest of the book. You'll not really get what it's about at all. And there are two destinies to come here. If the righteous, the those who follow God, those who meditate upon God's word, uh, uh, flourish like a tree, verse 4 tells us the wicked are not so. We see that God's blessings are not given universally. They're actually reserved for his people. But if we were to be honest, and some of the later Psalms will uh, acknowledge this and will help us in this, to be honest, does it always feel that way? Does it always feel that the righteous flourish? That they're always yielding fruit in season? The leaf never withers. That everything they do prospers? Does it always feel that way? Does it always feel as though the wicked don't flourish? It's not a great difficulty that it often seems that the wicked do flourish. There are some people in the world who really are quite wicked and yet flourishing. It's a difficult reality, isn't it? It's a difficult reality for the psalmist too. It doesn't always look or feel like the righteous flourish and the wicked don't. It's not as though the psalmist doesn't sort of realize this though, or that he just tries to avoid this problem. Feels it too. Look at Psalm 10 verses 1 to 5 with me, or at least let me read them for you. And this is only one example of some of the engagement with this idea. It says, why, O Lord, do you stand afar off? Why do you hide yourself in times of trouble? In arrogance, the wicked hotly pursue the poor. Let them be caught in the schemes that they've devised. For the wicked boasts of the desires of his soul, and the one greedy for gain curses and renounces the Lord. In the pride of his face, the wicked doesn't seek him. All his thoughts are there is no God. His ways prosper. 
at all times. Your judgments are on high out of his sight. As for all his foes, he puffs at them. He doesn't always feel that we see that reality, the righteous flourishing and the wicked not in life now. And there's many other places that we could come to throughout the Psalms. And yet, and here's why Psalms can begin with this summary that says the wicked will be blown away like chaff and the righteous do flourish and prosper, is that this isn't where it ends. Psalm 10 isn't where it ends, that frustration of actually seeing the wicked sort of flourish a little bit. It doesn't end there. It doesn't last. There's an honesty and a, a rawness that comes out here in the psalmist's writing because he can trust that ultimately God does hear. God does hear these requests. He, he does hear these groanings and these, this pain at the sort of inconsistency and the frustration. And yet also, not only will he hear, but he'll make things right. The wicked are not so, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. And here's the antithesis to that image, the opposite to that image of the tree, both in size from the huge tree to the tiny chaff, but also in value. The tree that has life within it and brings life through its fruit and brings shelter through its branches to the chaff that really is good for nothing, pretty much. But it's also about longevity. The tree endures. The righteous endure. They stand the test of time. They stand the various weather conditions and trials and challenges of the years. And stand. And the chaff, on the other hand, is here and then gone. And so now we're given two different venues in which the unrighteous will not be able to stand. How do we see this image that he's given us here of the wicked being like chaff that are driven away? Where do we actually concretely see this? Where will they not be able to stand? Just as we, as those who are righteous, as those who are following the way of the Lord, as those who are meditating and rejoice in the word of the Lord, shouldn't stand on the path of sins. Where is it that the unrighteous will not be able to stand. Well, we were given two places in verse 5 there. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment. The wicked may, and do indeed at times, prosper in life, at least seemingly. However, in Jesus' judgment at his return, there will be no escape for the wicked who will not stand. We unfortunately at times now see those who actually even are wicked and yet have power and have money and influence are able to escape the same sort of uh, judgments that we would uh, face the full penalty of if we face them, don't we? There is an injustice in our world very often, but not so with Jesus. The wicked will not stand in the judgment. There will be no escaping it for them. Firstly, they won't stand in the judgment. Secondly, nor sin is in the congregation of the righteous. There's not going to be any sort of covertly slipping into the crowd of the righteous, you know, to avoid the penalties of the judgment there for them. 
course on earth, actually, that, that is possible. It is possible to be part of a church and not yet know Jesus. Of course it is. It's not always easy to know exactly where everybody is. We're all in different places sometimes, aren't we, in terms of our faith uh, journey. But here, in this final assembly of God's people, in the congregation of the righteous, that's spoken of in, later in Revelation, there'll be no fooling God. You might be able to fool many other people in life, but there'll be no fooling him. The wicked will not stand in the judgment, and sinners won't stand in the congregation of the righteous. It may seem at times as though the wicked may even prosper in life now, but that's not the way it will end. This psalm reassures us that there will ultimately be a fair judgment, both for the righteous and for the unrighteous in God. Verse 6 here, for the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked shall perish. The Lord knows the way of the righteous. It's reassuring because the world doesn't always judge or understand rightly, does it? Sometimes the world wrongly discredits or ignores the truly righteous. Sometimes actually truly righteous living goes completely unrewarded and unrecognized. And if anything, actually even worse, discredited. And yet, at other times, there are those who are not truly righteous, who are celebrated in ways that are not deserved. There's an inequity to judgment in our life, isn't there? In our world. But there's a reassurance here that in Jesus, there is a fair judgment. He knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked shall perish. In contrast to the tree that stands over time, the wicked will perish. It may sometimes seem as though there's no difference, really, for the righteous and the wicked in life. And yet, while the journey is challenging at times for the righteous, the arrival is guaranteed. So why this songbook? Why does this take such an important place in Scripture? Why do they choose to write in this way, this variety of different songwriters? Maria von Trapp says this of uh, songs, music acts like a magic key to which the most tightly closed heart opens. Martin Luther, the Protestant reformer, says, next to the word of God, music deserves the highest praise. She's mistress and governess of those human emotions which are masked uh, which as masters govern men, or more often, overwhelm them. For whether you wish to comfort the sad, to terrify the happy, to encourage the despairing, to humble the proud, to calm the passionate, or to appease those full of hate, what more effective means than music could you find? And so these songs reflect the experience in life of following God. Faith and hope and joy, and yet also sorrow and frustration and they shape how we're to understand life. Commentator Walter Brugeman puts it like this, that standing at the beginning of the Psalter, that is the collection of all the Psalms, this Psalm intends that all the Psalms should be read through the prism of Torah obedience, of obedience to the word of God, of which is the theme of this Psalm. As all the Psalms are to be read or to be understood, in light of the call in this Psalm here, to walk 
in the way of the righteous. So we might say that actually this song, Psalm 1, is the song of Psalms. If Psalms is an album, this is the single. This is the song to be really noted above all else that makes sense of the aim and the themes of all the others is to walk in the way of the righteous. You see, those who walk in the way of the Lord are happy. Happy is the man, happy is the one who walks not in the counsel of the wicked. There is in the end here a happy ending. Why is that important? Does it really need that? Well, the great lie of human history is that you need to look outside of or beyond God to something or to someone else other than him to be happy. It's that lie that's driven all of our rebellion, all of our self-destruction as we keep falling for that lie. And so the question we end with this morning is, well, do you want to be happy? Then, dear friend, the song reminds us, follow the way of the Lord and you will find yourself blessed. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that amidst all of the uh, frustration of life at times, and we know that in many ways, a lot of our experiences in life and a lot of the systems in which our world is governed are, are very broken and don't really reflect uh, your glory, your holiness and your perfection and the way in which you made this world to be. There are very often moments of sorrow, moments of doubt, moments of frustration, moments even of, of despair at times. And yet, Lord, we thank you that there is ultimately a happy ending to life. That what you offer us is the chance to be truly happy, to know true joy in life through following you. Lord, help us when we are so easily uh, distracted and tempted towards so many other things to desperately try to fill a gap to feel a sense of joy in life. And Lord, we know that so often those things are advertised to us in that way, that so much of life is telling us that, well, if you can only get to this place, if you can only have this thing, if you can only have this uh, career level, if you can only have this amount of money, and if you can only just look this way or whatever else, you'll feel happy in your own skin. And Lord, we confess, we're so easily taken in still. So Lord, help us. Remind us, Lord, of your wondrous grace towards us, that Lord, everything we could possibly need to know joy in life comes from you and through you. The Lord, you give us indeed good gifts to enjoy as small reflections of your grace towards us in life. But Lord, I pray, would you help us to Keep on your path and help us, Lord, in busy lives to be able to meditate upon your word, to reflect upon you and all that you've given and all that you are and all that you've done for us. And so all that you've made us to be is your children. Holy Spirit, help us where we're so easily uh, distracted by so much other noise to be able to meditate upon you 
And so to find ourselves rejoicing in you and walking in the way of the righteous and built up as a tree flourishing, bearing fruit with leaves not withering. Being blessed in all that we do. So we thank you for your grace and throw ourselves into your arms once again this morning to be given yet more of your grace in this next week ahead. Amen. We're going to uh, sing a closing song together, Nothing But the Blood.